welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm, I'm very excited as we're going to begin a brand new series uh, this morning. We're going to go through the first four chapters of the book of Genesis. And uh, it's been very clear to me for a long time that this is what God wants us to, to go to as, a, as the next book we're going to study. Uh, we're not going to study it verse by verse, though, like we did with uh, the book of Ephesians. Instead, we're going to look at it rather looking at some key themes and key passages and, and different highlights that are presented to us in this opening book. But, but as I've been studying and as I've been preparing for, for our study here, I've, I felt like I I've discovered an ad, a treasure chest in an attic that, that I've known has been there, and I've known some of what's been in there, but as I opened up the chest... I began to discover new treasures and new exciting things. And so I'm, I'm super excited to kind of share that with you guys and, and hoping that, that all of us here and you guys at home will be blessed as a result of that. But uh, as I was again studying for it, I, you, know, you start reading all these different commentaries, these different views on how people perceive and understand this book. And, and it's interesting to see the level of attacks. I, I don't know if there's another book in the whole Bible that has faced as much criticism uh, both from people outside the church, but even from within the church, with really an aim, I think, to undermine the contents or un- under- undermine what this book contains. Uh, for example, one of the simple ones is they question whether Moses is, in fact, the author of the book. Uh, others argue that maybe it's just a book of myths, sort of what you know parents would tell their children in order to teach morality lessons, kind of like what Aesop Fables used to do. Uh, they argue that the accounts are, condri- are, are against each other. They contradict one another and therefore can't be trusted. And, and yet all of these criticisms, again, are coming from outside the church, but even from within the church at times. And yet one thing I think is really important to understand is Jesus verified the authenticity of this book. Jesus believed in the, in the accuracy of this book. Let me explain it to you this way. Those, the first five books of the, <clears throat> of the Old Testament, Genesis, <clears throat> Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, those five books, they form what's called the Torah. And that, bo- that word Torah literally just means uh, the teaching. And for Jews, initially, they saw those five books as one single book. And so that's how they would refer to it, as the Torah. And Jesus often quoted from the Torah, but specifically, he often quoted from the book of Genesis. And, and when he was talking with the Jews of his day. And even he believed in that authenticity. He was the one that, that believed that Moses wrote this book. And so I think if Jesus believed it, then it's something that we can trust. Amen? So, again, but it's not surprising to me that this book would be attacked so much because of the power of this book. I had one pastor one time, he kind of explained the book of Genesis this way. He says, if you take your Bible and you put it face down on a table... Genesis forms the foundation that all the other books sit on, are built off of. And he says, if you can undermine the foundation of that book, then you undermine everything else. And that's true. It it really is absolutely true in that way, because of what what we see there in that book of Genesis. In the Gospel of Luke, for example, the, the genealogy of Jesus is traced all the way back to Adam. In fact, the the Apostle Paul, half of his theology is rooted in Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of Adam 
And the other half is the cross. But if you take away the fall of Adam, then the cross is pointless and has no need for it. And then you also have the very fact that the, the, the right and the authority that God has over you and I as his creation, all of that, again, is still rooted in the book of Genesis. So you can start to see how, how powerful and how important this book really is. Now, the name Genesis, it comes from the Hebrew word tolda. And, and the word tolda is translated into Greek to Genesis, essentially. And that's where we get the name from. But the word tolda literally means origins or genealogy or the beginning. And we see this word tolda appear 13 times in the book of Genesis. As, as the writer here, as Moses, is laying out for us the story of different families, of different groups. The story of Adam and the story of the heavens and the earth and the story of Noah and his children and so forth. And so this word tolda keeps repeating over and over again. So what we're really seeing here is this is a book of origins. It's a book of firsts. Think about it. We get the first, the first days of creation. We get the first man and woman. We get the first marriage. We get the first sin, the first betrayal, the first child, the first murder, the first lie, the first time owning land, the first city. All of those are even in those, just the first four chapters of the book. So there's so many firsts that are, are here in the book of Genesis. So really, the book of Genesis is not just a origin story. It's our origin story. It's your origin story. And it's really important to understand our origin, right? In order to know where you're going, you got to know where you're coming from. And so that's what we really want to understand. And so my hope for our study then is, is really in these next however many weeks or months it takes, or years, you never know. <laughs> you never know, right? Let's be honest. But my hope is, though, is that really what you're going to discover is the greatness, the enormity, the glory of God. Amen. And all of that goodness and power and love and glory that he is aiming at you and I. And what is to be our response to that kind of love? That's really what I hope to see, that when we discover his compassion, when we discover his heart, when we discover his desire and his purpose, that we will discover the natural reaction to that kind of love as his creation. So let's, let's pray. Father, we ask you not just to bless this morning. We ask you to bless our whole study. Bless this whole time that we're going to be spending here in this book of Genesis, in these first four chapters. And, and may we maybe learn some things, may we kind of tickle our minds a little bit, but more importantly, would we experience life in you? Will we, will we hear life and experience and taste this life that you have given to us, your life, that has, has more than just impacts on our past or an understanding of our past, but has immediate impacts on our present? as we carry ourselves, as we walk around in this world, as we, as we love our families and one another. In your name we pray, amen. Well, th this morning and, and next week as well, we're going to kind of start with the question that I think is on most people's minds when they come to the book of Genesis, which is sort of like, how was the universe and how of all of, was all of this created? And so was it through a, a big bang and then you know millions or billions of years of evolution, or was it through a divine act of creation by God? So we're going to try to answer those questions in the next couple weeks. But this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the idea of evolution and the big bang theory. How does, how does science view all this. And so we're going to try to give a little short summary of it. 
And it, we'll start with Charles Darwin. So Charles Darwin, in, in ni- sorry, 1859, he, he published a book called The Origin of Species. And, and he wasn't the first person to notice similarity between animals and so forth. Uh, others had done that before him. I think even his father had noticed that. But for whatever reason, this book sort of launched it into the mainstream. He, and therefore, he's the one that's most associated with this idea of, of evolution. And so at the risk of oversimplifying it, evolution idea basically states that all living organisms, I want to make sure I pronounce that word properly, <laughs> all living organisms descended with modifications from species that lived before them. Right? So Darwin theorized, and, and I'm going to quote to you. He kept using, I'm going to use that term theorized, by the way, over and over again. But he theorized that life began, and I quote, in a warm little pond with all sorts of amina and phosphoric acids, at, uh, sorry, phosphoric salts, lights, heat, electricity, etc., And a protein compound was then chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes, unquote. So basically what Darwin theorized and what others believe is that the building blocks for life were all sitting in this primordial ooze and with the perfect conditions, spontaneous life was created. And it began to multiply and replicate itself, although not in perfect replication. It had light, slight little modifications and mutations, and those random mutations created different species on and on and on. Darwin goes on to say, conveniently, that such an event is impossible to reoccur. <laughs> Which is why we don't see spontaneous origins of life anymore. So, so basically, they're saying that you start with this, this single-cell organism that somehow magically came into existence, and then it magically evolves into a multiple-cell organism, and this continues to evolve and grow, and then you have a plant. And those plants grow into different plants and more plants. And, and then eventually sea creatures, simple sea creatures, they become fish, and fish become amphibians. Amphibians become reptiles, and they, they come on, uh, 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 onto land. And, and then these cold-blooded animals, they become warm-blooded animals, and they become you know, monkeys and apes, and apes become men, and, or they become Neanderthals, and then eventually they become men. And all of these, over time, these, these changes. And, and they often refer to this as the process of natural selection, or commonly known as the survival of the fittest. Where, where basically these, these, these uh, through mating patterns and random mutations, what ends up happening is, is these mutations stand or they, they remain intact because of necessity. Something in the environment requires them to you know, develop opposable thumbs and, and so forth. Now, when, when scientists are questioned on how far-fetched an idea this is, how, that somehow this complex human, this complex being that is women and men, but women in particular, right, that they somehow have spontaneously mutated from a single-cell organism. And the answer they give, well, they say, well, it, it took billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years. They have time. And so with, in that, and when Darwin, when he released his, his, uh, his book, they, they would have said, we had trillions of years. Because they thought the universe was a steady state, always, always existed, and just you had plenty of time. That was the answer. So yes, it was require random occurrences. Yes, the odds are so low. But with enough time, anything can happen. 
Well, that answer became a bit more difficult in 1929, some 75 years after Darwin released his book, when the famous astronomer, astronomer Edwin Hubble proved that the universe is expanding. It's growing. And it's been growing over time, which means that if it's growing, it had to have a starting point. It had to have a beginning. Well, that, that caused some problems, because now the universe is on the clock, meaning that you can't just say trillions and trillions of years, but they would have billions of years still for all of this evolution to take place. But they have another problem now, because if there was a beginning, the question is, well, how did it begin? What caused all this universe to come into, into existence? Enter the Big Bang Theory. How many people are familiar with the Big Bang Theory? Not the TV show, <laughs> just so we're clear. I might, I won't judge you for that. So the Big Bang Theory, <laughs> it states that approximately 13.8 billion years, give or take a few months, 13.8 billion years ago, there, there was a, uh, from a single point, a massive explosion. And out of that massive explosion, extremely hot, tiny particles, along with light and energy, exploded. And as it began to expand, it began to cool. And with that cooling, those particles bumped into each other with the energy and the light. And they began to form all the building blocks for atoms and subatomic particles and so forth, which eventually led to stars and planets and black holes. That's the prevailing theory. Now today, the Big Bang Theory, along with the theory of evolution, are the most widely held scientific explanations of why we are here today. That's the generally accepted, that's what's being taught to our kids in school. And, and I understand why, why those who would reject God, would, would this, this idea would appeal to them. Because as we're gonna see, it, it allows for there, not being, for there not to be a God. But there are some Christians who also believe this though that God created the universe through a Big Bang, that he was the cause of that. He snapped his fingers, there was a Big Bang, and then he used the billions of years of evolution in order to create you and I. And, and I understand why that would be appealing to Christians, because what they're, they're seeing is they, they hear the science, and they don't want to be anti-science. They don't want to be viewed as if they only got half a brain and they're an idiot. They don't want to, they don't want to look at it as if they just have this blind faith, and so they're trying to blend the two together. The problem, though, with that, as we're going to see even more so as we go on, is now you have direct contradiction with what the Word of God says. And, and so if, if Genesis 1-1, or Genesis 1 isn't true, then what does that say about Genesis 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 or 6 or 7 or 8 and so forth? At which point does it become true? And again, Jesus, he authentic, uh, authentic gave, uh, he, he gave it some credence, is what I'm trying to say, basically, <laughs> right? Is he, 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 he acknowledged the validity of this book. Now, thankfully, I would say, as believers, we don't have to choose between our faith or science. That the two are not mutually exclusive. We can have both, and, but for reasons that we're going to about to see here, these theories that science are pushing, I don't believe hold any water. And that's what we're going to look at. But, but this, I want to start with this little side note here about science. Science right now is being viewed as, as a religion. In fact, I would argue it is the dominant religion of our day. Think about, think about how it's being used. I mean, essentially, it's being worshipped as some kind of deity. And then the scientists become the priests that deliver the word upon high about this is what science says. 
And, and if, you, if you reject that, if you go against that, you're, you're claimed to be a heretic of some sort, and you need to be silenced and cast out, and, and we need to hold on to what is the orthodox view of what science has to say. And so we see that today, especially with political debates now being seemingly won or lost on statements such as, I believe in science, or I'm just following the science. And somehow they make those statements as if they are the closing argument in a court case. Well, let me tell you something about myself. I have multiple degrees. I have two degrees in science. I have a master's of applied science, and a, or bachelor's of applied science, and a master's of applied science from the University of Waterloo, one of the most respected engineering schools in the world. So I am not uninformed when it comes to science. I've been trained with science. I've been, my mind is wired to think in a scientific way. And I truly believe in scientific discovery, in exploration, but I also understand how science works and its limitations. And you see, I'm, I'm shocked, I'm frustrated, I'm annoyed at times though, when I hear people say, I just believe the science and I follow the science, as if that's supposed to stop people from asking questions. When you do that, you prove you don't understand science. Here, listen to this. Science does not have all the answers. They don't. In fact, good science invites questions. It wants questions, and here's why. Because those questions will cause that theory that's being proposed to either stand up and be strengthened or to fall apart because it's, it's got holes in it, which is good because you don't want to believe in bad junk science. And that's how the scientific method works. You propose a theory, the theory is tested repeatedly, thus proving the, or disproving the validity of that, that theory. And if a theory is proved to be true and accurate, it's no longer called a theory. It's called a law. And we have all kinds of natural laws in our world. Law of thermodynamics, law of gravity, law of entropy, and law of capillary action, and so forth. These are all theories that were proposed and then verified to be true, and we no longer call them the theory. There's no such thing as the theory of, the gra of gravity. It's the law of gravity now. But the whole I believe in science, so stop asking questions mantra is actually anti-science. Because it's used to silence the debate. But remember this, that, that even if all the scientists agree on something, doesn't mean it's true. There was a time where all the scientists would have said the world is flat. There was a time when all the scientists would have said that the Earth was the center of the universe. There was a time when science said there's nothing smaller than the atom. And each time, they had to come back and correct the record. So the thing about science is they, are not perf they don't have a perfect track record. And so it's OK to not accept on face value what a scientist says. In the same way that I would say it's OK to not accept on face value what a commentator says about the scriptures. I have a friend. I love what he says about commentators. He says, every commentator is a commentator. <laughs> right? He's a regular folk. He's a regular person. He is not uh, infallible. The only thing that we know to be infallible is the word of God. But beyond that, you can question it. That means you're allowed to question me. You can question Robin, but you'll be wrong. But you're allowed to question Robin. That's OK, right? Again, I'm not trying to discredit science. I'm not trying to be anti-science. I'm all for science. I just don't want us to be afraid 
when we're being bullied by people trying to play a science card. Because they're, when they're playing those science cards, they're trying to shut down the debate because they're really afraid, I would, I would say, of all the problems that those theories hold. So that's what we want to take a look at a little bit. Some of the scientific flaws. Now, we're not going to go into all the detail. You can, you can Google those if you want to find more detail. But I think there's some that, that, to me, just came really quickly to me that I thought are important us to share. The problems with both the, the Big Bang theory and the theory of evolution. Right? And remember, they're called theories because they're unproven hypotheses. So briefly, let's look at the, the law. Uh, sorry, let's start with the Big Bang theory. Now, the thing about the Big Bang theory, right? again, it, it starts out of nothing, out of nowhere. It actually violates the natural laws that we have in our universe. So number one, the Big Bang, it requires a big push of sorts. right? It causes a spark. There had to be something to get everything going, right? The, to cause the Big Bang. The problem is Newton's law of physics says that objects at rest will stay at rest and objects at motion will continue in motion until something happens, meaning you need an external force to cause something to change. And so what's the external force that caused the Big Bang? Because it can't just randomly happen, which then is going to lead us to the next problem, which is that you're getting something from nothing. Well, the law of the conservation of energy states that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. And yet what we have here is nothing creates everything. And so that's violated as well. So here's what scientists do. They say, well, before the Big Bang, those natural laws didn't exist. So therefore, we're not, we're not bound by them. OK. I'll give you that. But now what you're saying is not only did the Big Bang create the particles, the light, the energy, it also created the structure in which the entire universe operates, the law of gravity, the law of capillary action, and the Newton's three laws of motion. All of that was created in this Big Bang. OK, I'll, I'll give you that one. I, I don't agree, but I'll, I'll give you that one, because you have more problems and that uh, more laws of nature are violated through this Big Bang experience. And, and the Big Bang says that basically all of this order came from disorder, which violates the law of entropy. The law of entropy states that everything moves from order to disorder. The best illustration I can give you is a teenager's bedroom. <laughs> right? It starts off clean. And then they move in, and it just gets dirtier and dirtier, and, and light is, is, it disappears. It gets sucked <laughs> into the darkness, right? So <clears throat> that's basically the law of, of entropy, right? Now, I'm joking about that, but essentially, that's how entropy works. Everything moves from order to disorder. And yet, scientists are saying, no, no, Big Bang started with disorder, randomness, where it came to order, where atoms formed. And all the subatomic particles, actually, before that had a form. And then these atoms. And these atoms would, would form elements. And these elements would form bodies of, of mass and so forth over and over again that led to the formation of stars and planets and galaxies and black holes and all matter as we know it. Well, to imagine the sheer impossibility of that, let me give you an illustration. Imagine at the top of a flight of stairs, you have a bunch of ping pong balls all stacked to create a pyramid. So they're all neatly stacked on one another. 
And suddenly, for no reason, but suddenly, they all get knocked over, and they all bounce, bang, 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 down the stairs, bumping into each other randomly, all the way to the bottom of the stairs, still bouncing, 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 up the stairs, and form the perfect pyramid again, all on their own. That's what the Big Bang Theory is stating. Or to put it another way, imagine you gather all the, the little tiny bits of a Swiss watch, the little screws, the gears, the spring, all in the individual pieces. You take all those pieces and you throw them into a barrel. And by the time it hits the bottom of the barrel, they, all those pieces come together to form a watch and they have the perfect time. I would just be happy to have a watch with perfect time. I mean, that on its own would be impressive, right? But the, that's what they're saying. Is, and that, to be honest, doesn't even begin to describe how difficult you would have to go from something that is nothing and simple to the complexity that is our creation in our world today. And you know what? Scientists realize that. They, they, they recognize what creation is and what it holds. That these, these random explosions and collisions and, and adaptations over time have actually created something they would agree has this strong indicator towards design. And, and so what they do is they call it the fine-tuning of the universe. Specifically, actually, the fine-tuning of our planet. So you'll see this. Scientists will talk about how if the Earth was just a little further away or actually just a little closer to the, to the sun, life couldn't exist on Earth. Because the temperature, even gravity being so different that life couldn't, couldn't exist. That if the, life, the, 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 if the earth was a little bit larger or smaller, if the sun was a little bit different, if we had more or less planets in our universe, if the moon was a little bit off, all of that stuff, if it was a little bit different, then life wouldn't be possible. Life wouldn't exist. And it's like they said that there's this fine-tuning. It's so precise. And yet, randomly, all that came into existence. And then you have all the, the, the constant numbers in science, the speed of light and the, the force of gravity and so forth. There's, there's some 30 or 40 different constants that scientists have discovered over time that are, are critical for the, the, the smooth running of our universe. And again, they would say that it's all random. Well, let me, let me illustrate to you the, the craziness of seeing design and then just calling it random. How many people are familiar with the um, Easter Island? It's coming. There it is. You remember Easter Island, those statues? They're littered all over the island with these, these statues here that look like you know, heads and, and so forth. What if I told you that over billions of years, rain, and wind, and storms, and, and bugs, and insects, and, and all kinds of hail over billions of years, all these statues were formed naturally to look like human faces. Would, would anyone think that is possible? What if I told you that, that the, the pyramids naturally formed with enough sandstorms? No one, no one would think that. No one would believe that. And yet we don't know what caused the Easter Island statues. We don't know the story behind that. 
And yet everyone looks at it and goes, they see design. They see the intentionality of creating such a sculpture, and we all know somebody had to make it. And yet, that's what we're being told about God and creation. That when you look in the mirror, literally in the mirror, and you see the design that is in you, in your body, the symmetry and, and all the, um, how it all functions and works together, we're being told that it's just a product of complete, random, unexplained phenomenon coming together to make you and I. Well, that brings us to the next theory of question, which is the theory of evolution. And, and I think evolution has even more problems than the Big Bang Theory does. So if you can stomach the sheer improbability of, of that evolution exists, you got a problem because evolution actually violates itself. So evolution, again, that's the process of naturally random occurrences, this over time, these, these mutations. But each mutation, in order for it to stand, has to be required because it's survival of the fittest. Meaning if, if a mutation were to happen, but that mutation is unimportant or not necessary, then it wouldn't survive. It would die out. It needs to be required. And so that's, that's what has to happen with, with evolution. So the problem is that for life to start as a single cell organism, then mutate into a complex cell, never mind an intelligent life, you need a lot of steps for all that to take place. And what, what we're being told, basically, is something like this. Think about a DVD player. Well, what came first? Was it a DVD or the DVD player? Like, could you imagine someone sat down and, and created and designed a DVD player alone? That's it. And then millions and billions of years later, completely independent of that, someone created a DVD. And then they brought them two together, and suddenly they work. Can you believe that story? And yet that's what we're being told over and over again. See, the, the, the cells that you and I have have so many complex elements that you can't just have one without all the other ones being d d uh, created. Think about it this way. Plants need insects, right, in order to pollinate those, those, those plants and more for them to grow. But insects need plants because that's what allows them to live. So which came first, plants or insects? Men need women. Women need men. Which one came first? They would, they would say that they just naturally over time happened, and then they suddenly found a way to work it out together. There's this great um, uh, bacteria called the flagellum, which is a weird word. But nonetheless, it's a, basically what this bacteria is, is a motor. It's got all the elements of an electronic motor inside of it. It's got a stator, and it's got the drive shaft, and so forth. There's like 40 different pieces of it, along with the propeller, which is the little tail. Now, for evolution, what it would say is that each of those 40 elements would have to be created independent of all the other ones. But if you take one of those elements away, the whole motor doesn't work. So why would the cell create a drive shaft without a propeller and a motor? Why would it create a motor but not have a, 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 a propeller to move it? Because it's useless if you remove one of them. And yet we're told that all 40 of these steps had to be created without knowing the final product in the end. Again, there's so much design in our world. 
Now, there is evidence, I would say, of changing within a species, that certain species might grow a longer bill for birds and so forth. But again, that's going to be the result of natural selection. But there is zero evidence of, of a mutation of one species to another. There's an absolute lack of a fossil record, which is why they call it the missing or links, even. Right? We should, if, if that's the case, if we've mutated from monkeys to apes to Neanderthals to today, we ought to see a plethora of fossil records. Never mind every single mutation in between. And yet we don't see that. We don't see any of those fossil records. I mean, think about it. In Israel, you can't kick the dirt without turning up some kind of artifact. And yet we're told that after billions of years, there is still missing elements to our, our theory. So maybe there's no such thing as a half man, half ape, because there never was one. Well, next week we'll get into more of the, the other aspect of, of, of the prevailing theories of, of around the intelligent design. But you may be wondering why this morning turned into a science class. And the reason is because the world is pushing this idea that science disproves the existence of God. And, and therefore, anyone that believes in creation doesn't have half a brain. But do you want to know what, what proponents of, of intelligent design or creation have in common with those who believe in the Big Bang Theory and evolution? Is both need some force greater than creation itself in order to create and direct things. The difference is Creation and intelligent design accounts for that. The Big Bang and evolution is trying to deny it. It exists to disprove it. But they need it. It doesn't add up. So the famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, who goes all over the world and written all kinds of books attacking God, which I always find really interesting, by the way, that you would devote your whole life to attacking something that you don't believe exists. That's like me making a career out of attacking the Easter Bunny. <laughs> I don't think it exists. I'm OK with that. Sorry to tell you that, Greg. I, I wanted to tell you before the service. I... But anyways, so he goes around, and he's written books and so forth, and, and he's attacking this idea of, that God exists. But when he's faced with all of these questions, when he's faced with all these facts, he says something about, and he says, I will concede that there is the appearance of design. I will even concede that there is an alien force that came and directed all of this. So he's even willing to concede that there is an intelligent designer. He says, on one condition, I am not accountable to him, and I don't have to worship him. And it's like, ah, there it is. That's the issue. That's what it all comes down to. That, that ultimately, they want to worship at the altar of science because it makes themselves to be God. It makes themselves to be the pinnacle of evolution and creation. And then therefore, they don't have to be accountable to God or under his lordship or have anything to do with him. And that's the issue. That's what they're chasing after. It's the very thing that the serpent told Eve that you can be your own God, and you don't need God. But, but here are some massive consequences 
to, to the Big Bang Theory and evolution. And this is why I, I believe, as a believer, we can actually hold to those, <clears throat> to those theories. Because if you apply those theories, it has some pretty devastating conclusions. That if it really is just this, this randomness out of nothing, <clears throat> that all of us exist, <clears throat> it would mean that you and I are just random. And everything around us is just random. And there's no purpose to any of it. That we're nothing more than physical beings. There's no soul. There's no spirit to you. And, and not only that, your life on this planet is meaningless. Because everything ends in death. There would be no such thing as ethics, as morality, as right and wrong, or good and evil. Because everything's random. And, and it's just a result of, of these random electrons firing in your brain. And so those feelings, those, uh, those thoughts, those choices, they're not real. They're just random. But here's the other thing. It would say now that one race is superior over another race. Because a, one race had to evolve from all the other races, and therefore that one race is superior. And that's what Hitler believed. That the Aryan race was the evolutionary pinnacle over all the other races of man. But none of that matters, because life doesn't matter. You don't matter. Everything's meaningless. I would say eat, drink, and be merry, except that's pointless as well. So it doesn't really matter anyways. <laughs> that's, that's the final game, or the, the application of this randomness that is being thrusted upon us with this idea of evolution and Big Bang Theory. But ask yourself, does any of that make sense? Does, does the idea that nothing really matters and it's all meaningless, does that make sense in your heart? I would say that doesn't make sense, not just to the believers, not just to the people of the church, but the whole world knows that. And I say that because God has placed eternity within our hearts, it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11. That, that each person knows this is, there's more to life than this. Each person knows that we're not just random bodies of dust that are pointless. We know that there's something more to that. Because evolution cannot account for the human spirit or the human soul. Things that we find that, you know, to be funny, humorous, uh, creativity, art, design, the desire to explore to tinker, to, to the idea of searching for significance and meaning, none of that can be explained through randomness. All of that is pointing to a designer, to a God. And if, if our lives point to that, if our lives point to the existence of God, that there is a creator, then what is to be our response? What is, what is to be our response to such a, a truth because ultimately, if there is a creator, we must belong to him. That as, as creation, we are his creation. We belong to him. And he has, therefore, ownership over us. We're accountable to him. But there's also a purpose that he had in creating us. There's a purpose in he, what he was doing when he made not just this universe, not just this planet, but when he made Niven, he had a purpose in that. And he had design in that. And he had a purpose in making John and bringing the two of them together. And that's what he's doing. And 
so what my prayer for us as we study these first four, four chapters of this incredible book is that we're going to see this God, this creator, this one who has a plan and a purpose, has a heart and compassion and love towards each and every one of us, and that we would submit ourselves to him as Lord that we would submit to his plan, and we would, we would seek out this one, that we would seek out the one that we belong to, and that we can now live a life of value, of meaning and purpose in this world. Because it's far more than just random stuff. Eat, drink, be merry, and then you die. No, no. No, no. Not with God. I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come up here while I, I close in prayer. Father, what a, what a special truth it is to know that you are God, that you are the creator of all this, that you are the one that has, with great intention and design, you've made this planet, you've made us. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will speak to us in these weeks ahead. You'll speak to us today as we mingle around and enjoy a meal together and be reminded of the glory and the truth of who you are in Jesus and who we are in you and what you've done to make that possible. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.